red boxes so my dick can breathe. Breeze through in the Q45 by my side. Lyrical high. And those that brushes my clutches get put on crutches. Get smoked like touches from the master. Hate to blast ya, but I have to. You see, I smoke a lot. Your life is played out like Farm A and them fucking polka dots. Who rock the spot? Biggie, you know how the weed go. Unbelievable. show i'm your host vjr nathan usually it's sasha sugar but she's away for the time being um and i'll be covering the show uh for today's episode so i hope you all will enjoy and and uh listen in um if, and listen for the whole episode so today we're here with uh jason co uh jason it's, cool, named, huh? <laughs> it's cool. cool oh sorry cool cool jason Koo, um named one of the hundred most influential people in brooklyn cu- culture by brooklyn magazine Jason Koo is the author of three full-length collections of poetry, More Than Mere Light, published in 2018, America's Favorite Poem, published in 2014, Man on Extremely Small Island, published in 2009, and a chapbook, Sunset Park, published in 2017. Uh, he's the co-editor of the Brooklyn Poets Anthology, and has published poetry and his prose in many places. Um, he received a fellowship for his work in the, by the National Endowment for the Arts and Vermont Studio Center. And New York State Writers Institute as assistant teaching professor of English at 
uh, University, uh, Quinnipiac, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, Ku is the founder and executive director of Brooklyn Poets and creator of The Bridge, PoetsBridge.org. He lives in Brooklyn. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So we're going to be talking mainly about uh, your book, uh, More Than Mere Light, um, which deals a lot in my, I read it uh, previously, but I read it again to prepare for the interview, and I I feel like it does a lot with love. Love is a big theme. Love and relationships is a big theme and how we navigate that, uh, how you navigate it and how we all navigate that terrain. Um, so I'll start with the big picture question. Um, what does love mean to you and what does that invoke <laughs> in you? Uh, you know, what, what does that word really create in you and your being? Yeah, yeah, that definitely is a big pe- picture question. It's probably the, the biggest picture question of all. Uh, not sure I can summon uh, an all-defining, all-comprehensive, articulate answer for myself or for anybody. But uh, I think, you know, when I think of love and I think when a lot of people think of love, um, probably, especially those of us that that haven't experienced it, I remember what it was like before I had fallen in love or or really felt that in a relationship is I think what we really look for in that experience or what we mean is that we probably first of all really want to feel seen uh by the other person or just you know i mean we just want to be seen at all i think in general in life but when we feel like we are experiencing love with another person not just that we are in love with someone that may be unrequited or something but when we're actually in a relationship where we feel like we love the other person they love us we see them and, and they see us, and it's this mutually uh, catalyzing thing where, where your identity is fully present and, I think, activated. And I think that's the other big part of it for me is, is there is uh, an energy activation or an energy flow. Certainly any time I felt like I was in love or feeling that, like it always empowers my writing. Um, mm. uh, I mean, obviously also like breaking up and things like that, like stir up a lot of emotions which which trigger uh, writing for me, but uh, definitely the some of the the favorite poems that I've written have have also come out of the experience of feeling that that sort of first flush of energy uh, from being uh, in love with someone, and often that energy will even just feed you to write about prior sad relationships. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah, I would say being seen fully, and then also feeling like your your full energy as a human being is coming out creatively and even spiritually. Yeah, you started to talk yeah. a little bit about my next question. We started to talk a little bit into pathway into that but how does being a writer and writing about love writing about relationship and that experience of being seen and heard how does that change that experience you think uh you know how does that yeah enhance or maybe um does it detract at all or is it negative is there a negative quality to it do you think or prior to like when, when you're not writing about relationships are you more present or are you less present i don't know what do, what do you think is the relationship with writing about it yeah it's a complicated question um I think for myself personally, I haven't I haven't written much about relationships that I've currently been in. I mean, that's kind mm. of hard, I think, for anybody. I mean, I have, um, but the poems are always a little different. You know, I feel like for the the great love poems that I think of um, that I know of in English, or, or the ones that I that feel strong to me that I've written, are, are always almost always the, the dark ones, the destructive ones, the ones about love lost. Um, and I think just sort of practically speaking or compositionally speaking, it's 
it's easier in a sense because uh, the thing is over, right? Yeah. So you're now you now have enough distance from it. So like you may still be feeling some of those emotions, but there's still a di- first of all there's a dis- a little bit more of a distance emotionally than when you probably went through those things for the first time. But then there's also just a distance from the person, so that uh, not just the other person that you were with, but then even yourself as a person, there's distance from. So like that person can often feel like a completely different person when you end up writing about that stuff. So that uh, you were able now to process the the experiences and the emotions that you went through in order to write about them. I think, you know, when I when I was talking about, like, being in love and feeling that energy to write, um, I think of some of those as love poems, but they, they're not usually specifically about the the experiences I'm going through or, or even the person. It's just, it's more like an energy that I feel, and then it, it often the subject matter will be about something else. Yeah. Uh, but I'll still think of it uh, as a love poem uh, because it's fueled by that thing. But lately, you know, the, the poems I've been writing, I've been trying to just kind of write about everything, so... Even thing, you know, so like my relationship with my, with my wife now, like a lot of the poems that I wrote uh, over the last couple of years were written when we first met and some of the things that we were going through. So those things like now I just let those things come into my poem. But but that's like a different part of my process, whereas I think like even, you know, the poems in this new book, I wasn't doing that at the time for uh, the last relationship, which this book is largely about. I wasn't writing about those things as they were happening. I only wrote course, about them afterward. But maybe maybe um, as things are happening and you're writing about the past, or you're writing about things that you're distant from, it's still informing your current, in, at least in my <laughs> practice, it's informing yeah. your current, because you're kind of, for me, at least as a poet, and as a writer, there's an awareness in me um, that this, you know, awareness and a, and a kind of a mindfulness, maybe even, uh, about that this could be a poem later, 10 years from now, that oh, yeah. I need to be careful, now. I need to be, not, not careful or guarded, but I need to be aware that in each moment is as possible fuel for someone, or whether it be me or the other person to be reflecting on later and, and what kind of uh, imprint am I leaving now? And do you go through that experience or that kind of, it's almost like a neurotic, almost like, I don't know. <laughs> you mean like when you're yeah. in relationships and you're thinking that you might write about this later or even the other person might end up writing. Exactly. About? Exactly. That. Therefore I'd be very aware of how yeah. kind of impression I'm leaving. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't know. It's a little bit of a neurotic. Thing. That's true. That is a yeah. good point. I, I feel like I tend not to think about that that much. I haven't dated that many writers which uh-huh. is probably a good thing yeah there are a couple of people i've dated that are writers that i'm sure have have written poems about i'm not even I'm aware of them but uh yeah. i don't i guess i don't worry about that all that much um for myself there are definitely moments where i, I will think that this could be something i write about later uh but it's never with the extent like it's like the, it's never to the in the extent to the extent that like my mom thinks about it where she's <laughs> like she's like don't write about this later yeah. like i'm never thinking that like if someone does something bad to me yeah, that, that i'm going to yeah. take my revenge yeah. later by writing about it yeah it's always just something cuz i kind of think about this with everything like i you know if i just like go get a pizza somewhere like there's part of me that thinks like i might write about this yeah. like 10 years from now <laughs> you know uh, that's part of the that's pleasure funny. of writing is like anything can end up coming onto the page i think exactly exactly so now you mentioned a little bit that you got married in uh july mm-hmm. of 2018 right yeah july, summer of 2018 yeah so how did that change because this book uh <laughs> more than mere light was it and was mostly about the prior and relationships mm-hmm. prior relationships very yeah. much a single man's uh journey you know yeah. I, at least in my reading and i i connected a lot with the single guy motif and and how you navigated yeah. that but how did how did that change you, or how did that change being in a serious relationship, getting married, and all that? How did that change your perception of love? 
Uh, I don't know if it it changed my perception of love, except in the I guess to the extent that I felt like I could be happy. Yeah. Uh, Long term. Uh, I mean, I I think as I mentioned just a, a couple of minutes ago, I, f- you know, I feel like often when you think about love, and especially when you write about it, you you're what you're most struck by is just how different you were as a person just just yeah. you know a year or two bef- before. So I, you know when I this book came out in in June of last year, which was just a month before I get I got married, but but all of the poems had been had been written between I think 2012 and 2015 was the last one. And and most of them had been written from 2014 to 15, I would say. And the long poem, which takes up the the second half of the book was, was 2014, the summer when I was, when I was single. Mm. Um, So, you know, reading the book from the book to try to promote it, it was kind of a strange experience because like, because I, and then most of my, all my friends and most of the people that came to my book launch, things like that, they all were aware that I was, I was getting married. And and my wife's name is Anna with, with one N, um, in Portuguese pronounced more like Ana Maria. Her, her, her second name is Maria. She usually just says Ana to Americans to keep it simple for them. But my ex's name is Anna with two N's. Mm. So some people were even confusing the two of them. (laughs) Like there was a friend of mine, uh, through Brooklyn Poets who, who talked to, to Anna. I can't remember when at one of her Broken Poets events and was, was saying like, oh, it's nice to finally meet the muse. And she, she was just like, what was he? She realized that he thought that she was the, the person in the uh. book. And I was just like, how could you possibly make that mistake? <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, so that there was a, I mean, that always happens. I think when a book comes out, there's this weird sort of sur- almost surreal time warp where you feel like you have to like inhabit a prior self to to promote the book. But in this case, it was it was a little extra strange because like my current self is this sort of happy self in a loving relationship, and I was having to to kind of inhabit this this darker emotional self back when I was single, just which was just a couple of years ago. Mm. You know, not that it really like, like I'm not the kind of person where it dredges up the emotions. Like it, I don't feel yeah. those emotions anymore, but. I felt as if I had to go back into that mind frame just to read from the book. And that's that's always a little bit strange. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned, I was going to dive into it later, but you mentioned the, the 56-page poem <laughs> yeah. uh, that's uh, that, um, no longer see that. Um, uh, I, at first, when I started, I was like, I'm going to bow through this, go through this in one sitting. But I yeah. didn't take a few sittings to get through it because it, it Congratulations. really— Congratulations. Yeah, <laughs> I finished I, it. Yeah, I finished it. Um, and uh, I feel like it was almost like stream of conscious. How did you? Yeah. It was stream of conscious about like um, relationships for those who haven't read it, but relationships and also you're you're kind of going from one. It seemed like it was going, oops, uh, not the my <laughs> uh, It seemed like it was going from one moment and almost like you're writing almost like straight through till yeah. morning through the night and then going through the morning and you're narrating going through all these different moments in the day tell us a little bit about writing that and yeah yeah uh it's a good question i like talking about this poem because i don't get this opportunity much um it's the the form of it so it's this long poem that i think in manuscript was something close to like 40 pages and then in the book it's about 55 pages 56 pages or something like that the form of it uh is based on uh, a long poem that james schuyler wrote uh, called The Morning of the Poem, which is, is in a book of that same title that he published in 1980. And this is a, this is a book and a poem that I read uh, when I was in grad school in Houston. I think I... Actually, sorry, no, I read the poem for the first time when I was in college. But then in grad school at Houston, I originally wrote uh, a shorter version of this kind of poem um, 
which is about 17 pages that I wrote uh, to, uh, to, to Schuyler himself, right? So the whole idea of the poem is it's like a, it's like a letter poem, that he is writing this poem to his friend, the painter Daryl Park. Um, and part of the pleasure of the poem is that it's a direct address to this person, and yet it, it doesn't stick with that. So he wanders from the address, often like, you know, the way you might do in a letter itself. So it mm. begins as an address to this person, but then he, he starts addressing other people as a you as well. <laughs> so there's multiple yous in the poem, but then, you know, every now and then he'll come back to the main you. Uh, but it also functions as a kind of diary. So... Uh, the letters that I like, because I'm, I, you know, I used to be a big letter writer in the days before email, and 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 was a big fan of reading the letters of of writers, um, like Hart Crane and Emily Dickinson. Those are some of my and John Keats. Those are some of my favorite uh, poet letters. But part of the pleasure of the letter for me as a form was that you could just wander as a writer, and and often, as Crane and and Keats would do, they would write the letter over a series of days, and you would end up getting this much more composite much more open portrait of what their life was like and what their consciousness was like. So I really like the space that opens up in a poem when you don't confine it to a single sitting, or in other words, like the lyric moment. Like, I like lyric poems, but the, that kind of poem doesn't interest me, interest me nearly as much as the long-form space, or what some of us might think of as the epic space, where you are able to capture time over a series of days. And in this case, I think I wrote the poem over a series of about like uh, a month and a half, and I wrote in it every day. Mm. Um, so when you do that, you capture the self, I think, much more accurately because the self is something that's impossible to pin down at any moment. And even over a period of a month and a half, you're not really, you're not even going to come close to capturing what yeah. that's like. But what you are going to do is capture all of the changing fluidity of the self. Um, and that's something that I was really interested in doing, especially at that time, because I was coming out of this, what felt to me at the time, like a very devastating breakup, like it had just sort of definitively ended. And I felt like it wasn't just the breakup, but it was like at that stage of my life where I was nearing 40 and was really sort of reflecting on the person that I felt I had become, which was very different from the person that I, I thought I wanted to be or that I thought I, I, I always was in a sense. And just like my sense of myself at that point, I think I was like 37, 38 was very different even from like when I was 32 or 33, which was in that self was very different from when I was like 27. Uh, and I think every time you're in love, which I feel like I've been in every decade of my life since I was a teenager, like one sort of major <laughs> love relationship every decade, um, it just completely changes you, I feel. And like it, it really forces you to to come to terms with with you know, how you see yourself, how you see uh, relationships, how you see significant others, how you see the world. Um, and yeah, so this poem was really my attempt to come to grips with this. And it was spurred because uh, a friend of mine had written a letter to me, a, a poet friend of mine who was who was my main letter correspondent over the years. Uh, this had started back when we met at the University of Houston, and then she left to take care of her mother when her mother was dying of cancer. <clears throat> and this is when our correspondence had started, and she had just written me another letter saying that her father had just passed uh, of a heart attack, which was a complete shock. Um, so it was also an attempt to try to <laughs> respond to her in full because uh, it, it just felt like a, a regular letter wasn't sufficient for that because we had written all through her mom's illness and then eventual death, and then suddenly her dad died, and it was just... Like I was, my sense was like, how do I even respond to this in a single letter? So yeah. anyway, so I ended up writing 55 pages. Yeah, it's prompted <laughs> by all these different factors and, and pumps together 
in a way that seems like reconciling the the most important relationship I think that we have um in the loving relationship that we must have is with ourselves with our prior selves yeah. with our reconciling who we are um and and how the terrain the the uh postmodern and the and the contemporary terrain have changed the way in which we relate with ourselves you're talking a little bit about you know the the what the days where we wrote physical energy when we when we wrote out and there was less editing yeah you know I remember those days in um high school and college or whatever, early or late high school, when I was writing letters to people that, you know, um, in by pen. And then you're <laughs> not, like, editing as much as yeah. with emails. And there was a little time during college when emails had just started becoming more and more prevalent where I was writing long, long emails. Yeah, I did the same thing. <laughs> and then slowly, slowly, they tapered out. Now I don't yeah. write. I, maybe it has yeah. to do with age. I don't know. But now I don't write no, these don't lengthy, think, I don't think anyone does endless anymore. emails. You know, it's just quick correspondence to, mm -hmm. to connect with people. And now texting has become... Yeah. Very prevalent, and how we have these quick correspondences, how that's changed. It's kind of sad. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it, look, maybe, you know, maybe it has to do with how we aged. I don't know. Do you think young people today are engaging I with know, these kinds I don't. of <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, young people out there, if the, this is not the case, please, by all means, let me know. But I, my, my, my sense is that it, this is this does not happen. I remember exactly what you're talking about when email first became a thing. Everyone at that time was like, oh, what's going to happen to letters? But I think a lot of us who were letter writers were still doing that just via email. Yeah. And I remember yeah. writing just gargantuan emails yeah. that I ended up printing out. You know, yeah. like I was like, I have to save these yeah. for posterity. Yeah. You know? So I just have, I still have like a box of these old emails and like emails that I wrote in the 90s. Yeah. And then, you know, after about a decade, I think probably in the, early, the aughts and then definitely by, you know, like 2010, like that had all tapered off. So, I mean, every now and then I will still write a long email if like yeah. if something personal comes up between me and another friend or people that I'm used to writing more things. Or even if it's just like something serious professionally that I have yeah. to like explain to someone like how they have like how they have enraged me or something. <laughs> I'll write like a really long email, which I think a lot of people are just not accustomed to yeah. um, at all. But. I'm just trying to think, like, I almost never get a long email from anybody anymore. Um, yeah. And it's, I remember so, like, recently somebody wrote um, a writing, a young writer, a, a writing student who was given this assignment, and I won't mention her name because I, I, I don't know if she's comfortable with me revealing it, but she had been in a class where they had been, it was a great assignment, and it's something that I want to do with my students. She had been uh, tasked with finding a poet that she liked who was a, a, you know, a living poet and then writing a letter to that poet about their poems. So I had the, <laughs> the pleasure of getting this letter from a complete stranger about who had like really deeply read my work and was asking me questions about it and then giving her thoughts and like what the poems had meant to her. Uh, and it just, the pleasure of it was just being back in the space where, you know, there were typos or little errors. And I, and those are all things that I took pleasure in now because it, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a well-written letter, but it was, it wasn't edited in the way that you might've edited in an email. Yeah. And like the space of the letter was such that you could like, somehow she had captured herself moving through time in that same way that I talked about and talking about my long poem, because it was a letter, even though she had typed it out. It's just it just reads differently than an email does. Like the mm. the space of it feels different, and that's something that I feel like it's not necessarily that that's lost. It's just that it's not really being captured in I think in letters anymore. And there are I know people that still write letters to each other, but I think that's captured. And I think honestly, I think feel like that's why long poems have in some ways become much more popular today because I think a lot of poets are missing that. <laughs> so they're trying to find that in, in long form poems. Uh, I remember, and, you know. I remember when writing out a letter by, a letter by, uh, by pen, 
uh, you, you'd have to sometimes like go back and then like cross out or I'd add a little yeah. uh, arrow to say I want to <laughs> add something in there. Yeah. And that's part of the artistic. And yeah. Now we're looking back nostalgically thinking it's like an art form to be able to do that yeah. that we can't do or that we're impeded yeah. to doing with electronic formats. You know, you lose some. Yeah, of you that. lose something with that. You know, then you then as you're saying with the capturing the flow, then yeah. you realize later on you, you want to, to add something in there post. The PPS, the PPPS, <laughs> all these things. Now these become stupid with yeah, emails. Yeah, you yeah. don't have to put a PPS because PPS. you know, post, post, you days. know, like, what's the point of doing that? You just add it in there, you know? Uh-huh. Like, whereas uh, a postscript and a post postscript would, because yeah. you didn't have the ability to. I used to do PPPS. Yeah. I don't <laughs> think it's any surprise that, like, you know, I used to write most, all my poems by either computer or typewriter, like this long poem I wrote all on my computer. And I, yeah. But I don't think it's any surprise that now, and like now I'm writing exclusively long poems. After this yeah. book, it, I, I feel like I sort of felt permission to just, you know, I'm just going to write all long poems now. Yeah. I'm not going to write any short ones. Uh, but interestingly, now I do them all longhand first. And mm. I, I had never done that. And why am I doing longhand for these super long poems? But I don't think it's really any surprise when I when I sit down and think about it because I think I'm trying to to reconnect to that feeling of writing these long letters by hand, just, just kind of being lost in that, that mind space where you're not really thinking about time and you're not really thinking about efficiency of communication. You're just thinking about lingering in the space of writing. And I feel like when I'm typing, it's because I do everything now, you know, on my computer. And I feel like I want to leave the space <laughs> of the laptop so I can feel like my communication is different. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit more. We're going to give you a chance to read some poems. Okay. But before we do that, um, we were talking a little bit about how you've been influenced by other poets and, and, and their traditions in there. Earlier on, you were talking about how you read a poem by an author mm-hmm. and then yeah, that inspired James, James. Yeah, and that inspired this poem, right. your poem, right? So um, if you could just briefly talk about how your influences have shaped your experience of writing and, and shaped even your perception of your experience, of your human experience, and then we'll, okay. we'll read the poem, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would think, you know, in addition to, to Skyler, it just, it's, I don't know, it's, I feel like it's always been this way, and I have no idea why, maybe it's just, uh, this is what it is, me. it means to have a soul or an identity or just natural genetic DNA makeup, but for whatever reason, ever since I've I've become interested in, in literature, and specifically poetry, but also fiction, I've been drawn to writers that write long form, so all of my favorite writers are writers that I feel like uh, are trying to capture consciousness as it moves through time. So my favorite writer probably is Proust, the French novelist who wrote, of course, the super long uh, quasi-novel. I don't even know if you can call it a novel called uh, Remembrance of Things Past or sometimes translated as In Search of Lost Time, uh, A la Recherche du Temps Perdu. And then Whitman, of course, is one of my favorite poets, who we all know uh, was no stranger to the long form. In fact, you know, I guess pretty much invented the long poem in, in American poetry and basically birthed American poetry with this this poem. And I think, I think he was a crucial influence for me, uh, and not just me, but other American poets, at, at basically giving uh, the sense of permission that you could write this kind of poem with with really long lines that was almost like prose. And that seemed to have no end. And that was not only okay, but it was actually showing you different things that you could do in a poem that you couldn't do in a sonnet, right? Mm. Like, I hate it when poets say, like, oh, well, anything you can, you know, a poet, if you're a poet, you should be able to say whatever you need to say in, in just a few lines, right? Like, you should, be, you should be able to say whatever you need to say in, in a sonnet, which is 
absolute BS. Yeah. <laughs> a sonnet doesn't communicate what Whitman's Song of Myself communicates. It just doesn't. It doesn't open up space in the same way. It doesn't open up time or consciousness in the same way. Uh, it's just a different kind of form, which is good at doing a different kind of thing uh, than, a, than a long poem would do. Uh, John Ashbery was really important to me, but he was one of the first poets I read in college. You know, another poet that really seemed to break a lot of boundaries about, you know, what a poem really was. And I think this bewildered, still bewilders a lot of people today. A lot of people don't think Ashbery is even a poet. They just, they just find his poems completely incomprehensible, uh, which which I don't agree with. Obviously, I mean, yeah. I think some of the poems are less hard, less easy to understand than others. But I think his great poems again do that same thing that that writers like Whitman and Schuyler and, and Proust do for me, which is to open up the mind thinking in this way that seems to be without bound. Um, yeah, some so, of the poems, you know. as I was reading them, very much interiors, emotional mm-hmm. interiors, getting into the inner spaces, psychic spaces, yeah. that uh, for some readers, if they're reading them out of context, I think you really need to read a body of work yeah. to understand. You can't just, you know, in today's world, we have, you know, Poems in subways and poems in, you know, easily digestible yeah, poems in I, I collections and such, <laughs> where you're just reading like one poem by an yeah, author, yeah. and that can sometimes doesn't give you the the contextual understanding yeah. of um, that person's interior spaces. Yeah. 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 And that would be pretty much, I think, I was just saying, I was trying to, it's kind of muttering as you were talking, like, you know, what is it? Uh, poetry Emotion, it's called, right? So I just poetry feel emotion, like it, yeah. would, it would be pretty much impossible to capture any of my poems I, I don't think i could even if i even if they asked me to be, like i don't <laughs> think i could have a i could have a poem that i would give them yeah. and be like here's a short one that would really capture me and and that's kind of on purpose you know like i don't you know i think some poets are are good at that they're i mean i just first of all i don't think that's my strongest talent is is lyric talent like not that i don't think i can write a short poem it's just I don't think that's my my strongest skill as a writer, but it's also not what I'm most interested in as a writer. Whereas for other poets, that is their strong skill, and that is what they're interested in. They're really good at compressing, you know, thoughts and emotions into a small space, and and they could have a poem on a subway uh, or something like that, or they you know they could put all that into a haiku or a sonnet, and you know it's going to translate really quickly. Um, and I love those poems, you know, um, but. For me personally, it just it doesn't. It's kind of unfortunate. It would be a lot yeah. easier for me professionally <laughs> if it were the the, the other way. But uh, this is the way it is for me. So why don't we take a moment? Why don't we select? Uh, I'll give you about five five minutes or so. Okay. And, and we'll feel it out. But why yeah. are you going to be reading a selection? Uh, the short one, the original. But tell us, tell us which one you're going to. I just read one. I'll yeah, read one that's one about five minutes. Right, um, it's a a love poem that'll fit with this theme. Uh, I think reading from the longer poem is too difficult. Just, yeah. you know, just five minutes of that. It's not really going to give you a sense. So this is a poem called uh, Sunset Park. This is sort of like the the heart of the book in a sense, probably the most nakedly emotional poem, I would say. And it was kind of written with that uh, intent in mind. Like I think at the time I was trying to write the most naked poem I could because I felt like I was kind of just sick of myself <laughs> and sick of all of the the posturing I, f- I feel like I was I was sort of draping myself with. And this is, I wrote this right after that, um, the the relationship I'm writing about in this book was, I feel like, definitively over. And this is this is what came, and it came pouring out pretty, pretty quickly, I think, uh, just a day or two after um, I had that knowledge that this relationship was definitely over. Sunset Park. This morning, turned in bed, I thought of lying like that with you in Sunset Park, 
under the trees, kissing like it was the only thing that mattered, like lips and tongues and saliva could be endless. There was no other happiness but that. We'd stop every now and again and look up at the long swaying of the branches, the shifting of the leaves, as if the first couple on earth, amazed at our own luck. I can't remember how we got to the park or what we did after we left. I just see us sprawled on our blanket under the trees, high up on the hill, our mouths full of each other. So many small things took size from that sprawl. I want to be on that hill with you again, not worrying about anything, not caring about anything, content to look at you instead of the city shimmering on the horizon. There were so many days I missed between now and then, so many moments you looked at me trying to get back to that time, leaning in and closing your eyes to kiss me. Then I kissed you routinely and returned to whatever dumb thing I was doing. I can see the sadness in your eyes across so many of those days, reflection of the ship departing. But the beginning of our life together, immortality. I can see the light lengthening the small floors of our apartment, where you always seem to be stationed, working on your yoga classes, writing your little notebooks with your five different colored pens or trying out different poses, sometimes popping up into a handstand, your long hair softly extending down the space from your head to the floor. What was I doing then? Is it possible I was just watching you, not doing anything? writing, reading, just secretly observing you, marveling over you. Those days we'd start to cook, and halfway through the warming of something, we'd be kissing, unable to stop, hands all over each other, mouths probing and probing, clothes yanked onto the floor, furniture pushed back, soon the smell of something burning. The first time I hurt you, you asked me if I remembered those times. Our dirty text message is now some form of purity. I said yes. You said, a little sadly, those were good times. I thought of Yeats's phrase, a little sadly. Those were times not long before the first pain, only a few months removed, more than a little sadly. Hard to believe we could live through bedbugs then, still happy, me sealing up all the things in my bedroom in big blue Ziploc bags and staying at your place, not touching you at the door when I got there, but going straight to your shower and taking off my clothes and sealing them in their own blue bag, then striding naked into your living room like some warrior king. Those cold days emerging out of your apartment feeling not quite formed, but endless, not knowing anything about New York but thinking you were the key, going to the little coffee shop where you introduced me to the cappuccino, feeling out of place while we waited in line, thinking everyone there had a Ph.D. in coffee. How much smaller my world was then. How happy. I like to say to you as things got worse, how happiness didn't matter, how our lives, our work were what mattered. If you had these things you believed in, you didn't stop to think about whether you were happy. That was a luxury an elixir that didn't last. 
But now I know I didn't think it mattered because I was happy, despite the sadness. There was always you there, endlessly beside me. I took and took and took from that source without offering the least endlessness in return. I never thought it was possible to lose you, I now see. That now see such a stupid phrase I'm doomed to repeat endlessly, floating in the now see of these seconds without you, no current toward a future, no horizon. If I could just make it last, with a little more effort, a little happy, how simple it all seems, touching your face, seeing you again, kissing you kindly, making you happy. Thank you, thank you. So, um, yeah, I think that one particular, that was really great, and I, I love the way you call attention to specifically in the line, uh, I want to be in the hill with you again, not worrying about anything, not caring about anything, content to look at you. It really speaks to the themes of what we were discussing all this time about how, you know, in today's age and, and as we get older, you know, uh, this digital media, this social media has made us very self conscious and so hyper self-critical where we're like we need to be out there you know post about it. we need instagram about it. we need to uh <laughs> yeah. post this stuff. i need to sound witty we need to sound you know um introspective we need to sound this and that and uh and how just being there content to that moment um experiencing that joy of of being you know yeah it's something we all struggle with and i think <laughs> i saw it repeated in the book a couple of times there was another i flagged another one where if it's just us, five of us, you know, uh, one of the poems you talked about how sitting there and talking about the five of us being there, and that was the only people who oh, experienced yeah. the joy the of that moment. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, what, would, what would, would that be, the end of the world kind of thing? It felt, <laughs> you know, like, what's the matter with, why, why do we need to, yeah. you know, extend ourselves, get a thousand likes or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the world has changed a lot since uh, this book began. Like, this book, you know, the earliest poems in this book were written... I think before the days of Instagram or maybe right at the start before I was aware Instagram existed. Mm. I think I I discovered it um, definitely in 2012 because Book Compose was found in 2012. And at, at the beginning, we were almost like, it felt, felt almost like Instagram was there to help us at the, the start because uh, one of the major things I was doing in the beginning of Brooklyn Poets, which we weren't doing a whole lot in the beginning, was just taking photos of Brooklyn. And this is how we, we started to attract a lot of followers, just the, the photographs that I was taking and trying to like capture Brooklyn history and places of beauty or places of literary significance. And I was just constantly Instagramming. And it was definitely uh, starting to interfere with my relationship at the time. But, uh, you know, when the, the, the moment that I'm capturing in this poem was definitely before those days um, when I was much more innocent. Um, and I think my partner was more innocent. I think New York City as a whole was more innocent. Like you didn't see, you know, people coming up, going up the hill at Sunset Park to Instagram that moment, you know, mm. where you can see the, you know, the Manhattan <laughs> skyline yeah. at sunset. Now it's just, you know, there's, you're going to probably find like hundreds of Instagrammers out there every night. So it's just, it's, it's lost its innocence. <laughs> yeah. And there's always that feeling, but at the same time, the other flip side of it is uh, how do we discover community? How do we discover uh, feeling that we're connected to those around us? And this is just one way, you know, to be able to feel like we're part mm -hmm. of the community, that we're not isolated, yeah. that we're not on our own island, we're on a small island or whatever. Yeah. You know, we're part of that community. So it's just one way to do that. But 
It's the but, irony of social media, though, yeah. right? It's like, it's exactly right. Like, and you know, like as I was saying, uh, social media—not just Instagram, but Facebook um, and Twitter to some extent as well—were, and then just using like newsletters and emails was, was a big part of how Brooklyn Poets mm. established its community. This is how we connect with people, since we don't have our own office space, we don't have people physically coming into our, our building or something. Mm. We rely on social media to yeah. to connect with people. But you know, at the same time, like the 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 downside of it all is that it it ends up making you always kind of hyper self consciously experience your own experience, as as Emerson might say. Emerson, I think, once you know, to paraphrase him, says like, "We never experience our experience." Essentially, this is what he talks about in his essay, "Experience," and that was in the nineteenth century. <laughs> Imagine him writing today. Yeah. Uh, in the days of social media, this would just be you know quadruply true. That, uh, you know, and I think specifically in connecting with people just in person, it's not that if that doesn't happen. Of course, it still happens. It's just, it's just always now much more quickly, um, I think, distorted. I mean, distorted maybe is a strong word. I mean, often it is distorted, but even if it's not distorted, it's definitely always influenced now by technology yeah. uh, at, at some point. And it's usually pretty quickly that it will be influenced that your connection with another person in the flesh. Like when is the last time you met a person in person and then like reconnected with them without the use of technology? Yeah. <laughs> it's just almost <laughs> ludicrous to even think. Like you yeah. probably at least connected with them on the phone or via email or something. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't just like, hey, I'll be at this place next Friday. <laughs> Let's yeah. reconnect there or something like that. <laughs> You know. Yeah, that's why it's always amazing when you just run into someone. Yeah, and then yeah. off-guarded moments, you know, and like, oh, okay, like, wow, imagine wow, that, imagine that, imagine just running into you here, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I'm gonna put a request out for Collins if anyone wants to call in, <laughs> but I have well, I'll keep the conversation going. But seven one eight nine two eight nine seven three two is the call number if anybody would like to call and ask a question or make a comment about the conversation. 718-928-9732. Feel free to call in, um, and then we can talk a little bit more to you and uh, and keep the conversation going. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your identity. In the book, you bring up a lot about being Asian-American and, mm-hmm. and how it's influenced your writing and your and your understanding of poetry. And, the, uh, you know, we under, you know, in popular culture, we talk about tiger moms and and how Asian Americans <laughs> right. are pushed to become lawyers and doctors. Yeah. And you do talk about that in the book. Yeah. So if you talk a little bit about your decision to become poet and how Asian American your Asian Americanness has changed that or influenced yeah. that. Yeah. Um yeah, I do touch on it in the book and I've touched on a few other poems as well, uh, a couple of my previous books, and then definitely something I'm writing about actually currently right now, the poem I'm working on is is, is touching upon this in a in a different way. But um yeah, I mean I, I sort of grew up with the you know what's what's become the the stereotype of the of the tiger mom, you know, which of course there's some truth to and a lot of untruth to, but was was definitely not raised to be a, a writer, let alone a poet. Uh, was my dad was a is a is a doctor, still works as a radiologist. Um, so the, always the thinking was that I would uh, you know go to an Ivy League school, be a pre medical student, and uh, and do that. Um, I think you know by the end of my senior year. Um, you know, and one of the, the things that we joke about now in my family, or I joke about this with people, is like one of the things that led me to writing was my mom trying to get me to raise my SAT verbal score. Mm. <laughs> so she was enrolling me in these what I th- what I sort of lovingly call nerd camps over the ah. summer, 
and I would be taking the writing classes to, to work on my, because my, you know, my SAT math score was pretty good, you know, it was like a high 700s, and my verbal score was like in the 600s, which was, was not adequate to get into an Ivy League school. So I was taking the, these writing classes, and, and I started getting into to reading, and then ultimately creative writing. First it was fiction, and then later it was poetry. And then my senior year of high school, I took, uh, I had this amazing, uh, AP English teacher who really got me interested in literature. And I think that was when I read Hamlet for the first time. And that was a really catalyzing experience for me because it really opened my eyes to what I thought true literature really is, where you really uh, have a sense of the writer having created this text that seems to be aware of itself. Like it seems to be like the writer had purposely created a text that could mean multiple things and that was open to many different kinds of interpretation and they were all sort of equally fascinating. I, I think to that point, I just never really believed that. I thought we were all just making too much of it in these English discussions. I was just like, well, the writer obviously didn't mean all of this. Why are we even trying to interpret it? It didn't occur to me like that you would read a piece of writing and, and care to interpret it, like why you would do that. So just the idea that writing was connected to meaning was just mind blowing to me, and then I, so I really became interested in that. And then when I got to college, I started reading poetry under the influence of the classes I was taking. I also had this friend who was an upperclassman down the hall who was super serious about not just literature but all books, uh, and always was kind of chiding me and shaming me and making me feel like I hadn't read enough, which I really hadn't at the time. Was just being like, how can you have not have read like Ulysses? And I was like, why would a freshman in college have read Ulysses? <laughs> but this is the kind of thing that happened. Uh, in my school, and this is the kind of thing my friend would do. So I, I really started reading pretty deeply, and um, that's when I started getting into poetry. And then, like, it became clear to my mom that I was I was becoming obsessed with this. So she sort of gently steered me away from medicine, thought, like, oh, well, maybe you could do, you know, you could become a lawyer, you know. You don't have to, like, major in that. You could just major in English and then and do that. So that's what I did. And then, and then you know, I just sort of progressively kept going down this road. And then after college, I, I paralegaled for a year, Kind of just, I, I really was pretty sure I wasn't going to do law, but I didn't, at the, also at the same time, I had no idea how to become a poet, right? So I was like, how am I going to do that? And then in that year after college, is one of the things I write about in this long poem, I, I discovered uh, MFA programs and that they were some of the poets that I had started reading, like Edward Hirsch, uh, were actually alive and teaching in these programs. And I could just try to apply and study with them, which is what I ended up doing. And it's just, it was just a matter of just trying to piece together my own path because my parents is as uh, first-generation immigrants to America from South Korea, like, just had no conception of what it's, what it, how are you going to become a poet, right? So that, it wasn't, their fear was really just largely related to that. They didn't know how to advise me in that. So mm. it was terrifying that I was going to, like, strike off on this path and try to do that because there were no easy sort of steps to follow except to, like, go to an MFA program and then eventually to get a PhD. So that's what they really were pushing me. They're like, well, if you're going to do this, you need to get your PhD. You need to become a professor because that at least is going to give you some kind of professional standing, financial stability, and those kinds of things. But, yeah, in those ways, it's it's definitely influenced the, the path that I took. Like, my mom's biggest fear was that I would just be, like, a fireman. Huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> right, but I don't know why that's that was so her bad. Big... It's like, I think oh, one yeah. of her friend's sons had yeah. become a fireman, and she was... Aww. Was, and was like interested in art. Yeah, I was yeah. like, I thought that kind of sounded kind of yeah. cool. Yeah, it says, yeah. but one thing I want to talk about. Uh, this is the What Is Love show on Radio Free Brooklyn. This is VJR Nathan. And I'm uh, substituting for Sasha Sugar, the normal host, uh, who's away. Um, I guess searching for meaning and searching for higher meaning and doing the retreats and stuff like that. But uh, one thing I want to get in on is um, how I'm also a, a son of a 
first generation immigrants from India, mm-hmm. but uh, being son, being the sons of uh, first generation immigrants, uh, how their view on love and relationships has influenced you? Because oh, uh, my parents were of an arranged marriage, but they they you know they had their tumultuous times, but they they really were very committed to staying together and how that has an has an impact on me um yeah about how i perceive love marriage and relationships uh talk a little bit about how your parents view of love and marriage has influenced you yeah yeah that's a good question uh it's definitely influenced me i mean it's not just, not just my parents but my i have two sisters one older one younger mm-hmm. i think it's always i mean i was lucky enough to have you know come from a a home that was stable mm. you know my parents are still together they never had any major tumult or anything like that, at least not that I saw. They're always, if, if there was any kind of fight, they're always really good at keep sort of keeping that to themselves. So they were really model parents in that way. I was, I mean, I've always been kind of the, the black sheep of the family in a sense because I'm always, I've been the only one that's had a lot of different kinds of relationships. Mm. Like my older sister met her husband in college and I think dated a little bit there, but that was like the major relationship she had. And then she married him just a few years after college. And then my my little sister did a little bit a little bit more dating than my. I'm sorry if you're listening, sister. I'm sorry I'm talking about your <laughs> life. But uh, my little sister did I think a little bit more dating, uh, but she, you know, it wasn't anything close to what what I was, what had done in my life. And then she ended up finding her current husband and marrying him. Um, she in some ways like broke some ground in the fact that she married a, a white man, whereas my older sister had married a, a Chinese American. Uh, even the fact that my older sister married a Chinese American was initially kind of an issue because my parents really wanted us all to marry Korean people mm. because that is what they had grown up with and that's what they felt like their family wanted. Yeah. Uh, but to their credit, and so like they let us know this and they were they were pretty strong about it when we were kids. But I think when it to their credit, like when the reality arose and when we were finally in these relationships and met these people, they they never were like, no, you cannot date this person. Like mm. they, because they just wanted to meet them. And then when they met the people, liked them and then eventually loved them and were fully accepting of them. Um, so, you know, but I think it helped, you know, like being the only son, I, and I'm sure you've experienced this. I don't know if you're the only I have son. One sister, but yeah. only son. Okay, yeah. So, like, I'm sure yeah. you feel this pressure as well. This, this, this pressure of like extending the family name, mm. um, that felt like an added pressure. But I do feel like my sisters both getting married before me sort of broke this ground in the sense because my my wife is is Brazilian, um, and I'm not sure. I think if I had been the first to to try to break that ground, it would there would have been a lot more tumult. But by the time that I eventually uh, settled down uh, and got married, I think they were much more accepting of that. And they've just been, been great to my wife. But I think also just the fact that I was like, at this time in my early forties, I think they were just, it was almost like, <laughs> like the, the same thing professionally. Like they, they just kind of gave up on trying to get me to go to medical law school. It was just like, well, just get your PhD and do something, just become a professor. And it was the same thing with, with marriage it was just like, just marry somebody that seems like a good so person. True. Cause they were the, the big fear at that point was that I was not going to get married at all. Uh, but it's definitely been an influence. I think when I think of, of marriage and I think of like, you know, it really influenced my sense of like who I wanted to marry. And like when I met Anna, Anna Maria, 
you know, she also she is an immigrant to America, and our families are very similar in a lot of ways. They both sort of like middle class, upper middle class families, and like my their my parents and her parents just get along almost like they've just been old friends. And I just I recognize that very early on in our dating, like just talking to her and then meeting some of her family, like I really recognize a strong family resemblance, and that to me really influenced the sense like this is a you know beside being in love with her, this is you know it's going to influence like this is the person I want to marry. I can see myself being with this person long term because our our families are going to get along, and I think that was definitely an influence of my my parents for sure. Yeah, I definitely think that uh, you know as you're saying, just picking up on a few threads that. You know, the order, birth order has yeah. a lot to do with how how our experience of life is. Being yeah. the younger child, you know, my sister is older. Yeah. I experienced a very different is she, is she married now? Does she uh, get married she's married, before? has three yeah. kids. She went, became a doctor. She became, uh, she works yeah. for the, uh, you know, government agency and all that. And yeah. so all these kinds of things. So, so she checked a lot of boxes that you didn't boxes have to check. Have to, exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, my so, older sister's a doctor, yeah. too. Yeah. And, my, and my little sister, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then also, it helps. Uh, you know, coming from progressive liberal parents that grew up in, you know, as you're saying, even though they're, you know, the, we have these traditional ideas about uh, Asian American, South Asian, or East Asian being mm-hmm. like very um, uh, controlling and such, and, and being very traditional and traditional values. They yeah. were very liberal as well. They seemed yeah. like very progressive, although they had a lot of that influence of, oh, you know, maybe you guys should marry Indians or whatever, or maybe you guys should. Yeah. And then they, they, as they lived here, they realized, hey, the world's yeah. very different and, and changing and, and all these kinds of things that, that, that the norms that they grew up with, quickly they realized they're not going to be the norms that we're yeah. growing up with. Yeah. I think you kind of have to be – like my, I think my, my parents are probably more conservative than, than, than yours just mm. from, from what I'm hearing. But uh, yeah. I think just you know, being immigrants, like you, you have to be able to adapt and, and mm. change. And if, and if you're – not it's just not like a survival skill mm. and i just feel like and they they had a certain vision but you know i think just i mean i'm just completely speaking for them but just uh-huh. imagining what their experience had been like coming over here in the in the 70s and, and still all of our extended family is in south korea and you know we don't have much con- our, the children don't have much contact with them they go back every year every, they try to go at least once a year and see the family but there's very little contact between the extended family and the family in America. So I think that they just are just pragmatist at the, at ultimately at the end of the day, they yeah. are, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't describe them as liberal, but they are pragmatist in the sense that like, they're not going to tell their kids what to do, you know, mm. because I think that I'm sure they had a lot of pressure from their parents not exactly. to come to America. You know? yeah. Or maybe they, I don't know. I don't know what the story yeah. was, but, uh, I'm sure they've gotten a lot of flack for various things that they've had to do. Uh, yeah. Good, good. So yeah. I, I hope people go run out and get more of the mirror light because uh, it really does really dwells into all these issues and, and the loving and the, the struggle. The struggle is real. I think it might be a tag, a hashtag <laughs> I'd put on it. Um, uh-huh. I don't know, but at least yeah. in my reading that understanding and, and having empathy for uh, navigating all these difficult terrains uh, about, cultural identity, about relationships, about uh, self-awareness. All these different things came through to me. Uh, many different lines were very good, especially uh, when you talk about uh, finding that meaning in the, in, the, in the moment, finding that meaning in personal connections and community. So speaking of which, speaking of community, um, I just want to say that uh, Ready for Your Brooklyn is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and pr- promote media literacy, education, and free expression. 
So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or even a monthly pledge. Hey, what the hell? Might as well <laughs> sign up for a monthly pledge and go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Because every cent that you get donate will help us to continue to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford, even if it's a dollar a month, $2 a month, go for it. All contributions are tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Um, also, tomorrow, I believe there's going to be a Radio for Brooklyn DJ night. The day of the event, I believe, is on Tuesday, 1-14 at 9 p.m. Um, end time around 11, probably go on later, who knows. But venue is uh, Grattan Street, 12 Grattan Street in Brooklyn. Uh, come out to the Pine Box Rock Shop, located at 92 Grattan Street in Bushwick, on Monday, January 14th at uh, 9 p.m. for Radio Free Brooklyn's DJ Night. Your favorite Radio Free Brooklyn DJs will be spinning tracks from 9 to 11, including the best in Brooklyn-based music. Admission is free. Thank you. So um, I guess we'll go out with the song, uh, but if you have any last comments or thoughts, uh, definitely feel free to... Any last plugs? Anything you want to plug? Or oh, sure, yeah, yeah. So tomorrow night. Uh, so if you don't know, I'm the. I think I think you mentioned this. Yeah. I'm the executive director of Brooklyn Poets. Tomorrow night, we have our monthly YAWP event, which is a joint uh, writing workshop and open mic. And tomorrow, I will personally be leading the workshop. I'm always there just as the host and the MC of the open mic, but I will also be leading a workshop on uh, a Whitman theme. This is the 200th. Uh, this is the year that uh, Whitman will turn 200. 2019, May, May 31st, 2019, is his bicentennial. And uh, to kick off that bicentennial celebration at Brooklyn Poets, uh, I am leading a reading of Crossing Brooklyn Ferry tomorrow, and students are going to write in response to his question from that poem, What Is It Then Between Us? Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. (laughs) And that will lead into a poetry contest, which we are going to open on January 15th to uh, all all people in three different age brackets, high school age, college age, and adult age, uh, responding with the poem to this question, what is it then between us? So find out more information at brokenpost.org about the event, about the contest, and look forward to that event on May 31st, 2019. It'll be in Smack Mellon and Dumbo when we celebrate the winners of that contest and celebrate 200 years of Walt Whitman. Excellent, excellent. Thank you. So we'll go out with uh, Can't You See by the Marshall Tucker Band. Uh, thanks so much for being here, and hope you guys enjoy the music. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Tuesdays at 3 p.m. for Fish Out of Oz.